Every uh, every summer in the uh, the rainy season, quote unquote rainy season, the Vasa retreat period, we have these Sunday talks. So uh, there was um, uh, not as much, uh, say, uh, forewarning for the the titles this year. We're still trying to get uh, everyone's names allotted to the particular Sundays. So we just have the first three pegged out at the moment, but um, we'll be publishing the full schedule in due course. So begin uh, with uh, the namotasa three times namotasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namotasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namotasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa so perhaps the people in the kitchen could be invited to end their conversation. Or join us out here. <laughs> I apologize in advance for being a bit croaky. I had a, a uh, very uh, runny cold over the last couple of days. So I'm just... Uh, coming around from that. Yeah. Now the uh, theme for the uh, first talk of this vasa is uh, what does it mean to be a Buddha? What does it mean to be a Buddha? So <clears throat> this seemed like a, um, uh, say a good way of opening uh, the season's uh, talks and reflections when we call ourselves Buddhists or people who are interested in Buddhist practice and we uh, gather together, we call this a Buddhist monastery but uh, what do we mean when we use the word Buddha? Uh, and it probably means to say um, uh, 50, 80 people, 100 people uh, perhaps uh, listening to this, then uh, it probably mean uh, 50 or 80, 100 different things. So that uh, the, the word um, has many different connotations or suggestions to different people according to our own backgrounds, our own conditioning. But in terms of the the Buddhist scriptures and mythology to be a Buddha is a part of a, um, uh, a lineage. So the Buddha described himself as just uh, being one in a succession of Buddhas from uh, previous ages way back into the, the mists of time. And so that uh, he described how uh, at, at various periods uh, a fully enlightened being uh, arises in the world and establishes a a teaching establishes a monastic order and that teaching uh, su sustains itself in the world for a period of, of time, either shorter or longer. And uh, in the, the Pali scriptures, in, in the, the Pali canon itself, the Buddha uh, lists uh, him, uh, before him uh, previous uh, six Buddhas, uh, the Buddha Vipassi, um, 91 eons, 91 kalpas ago, and then Sikhi and Vesabhu, they were all in previous eons, previous kalpas. In this particular era, this particular kalpa, then the, which is called the fortunate kalpa, or one that is very blessed because of having had so many Buddhas, we have uh, uh, Konagamana, Kakusanda, Kasapa Buddhas, and then Gautama Buddha is the, the Buddha of the current age. So that uh, speaking of these, um, this kind of mythological Framework when the Buddha was saying that you know he did not 
particularly in, invent these teachings. Um, he is merely the, the latest in a, a long line of beings who have rediscovered them. And he talked about it in terms of rediscovering an ancient path, like a, a path to an ancient city buried in the jungle, and rediscovering the, the, uh, the pathway to that. And, it, and other scriptures after the, the time of the, the Buddha himself, later scriptures, um, uh, they listed the uh, even more Buddhas. So we, we uh, do a protective chant called the Atanatiya Purita, where it goes back uh, way before the Buddha Vipassi, Tanhankaro, uh, uh, to the uh, 28 Buddhas previously, and uh, a whole lineage from, from him. And then other later scriptures, you have 500 Buddhas. So it's like the longer after the Buddha, actually lived, the more Buddhas are talked about. <laughs> so in his own lifetime, he only talked about seven. Uh, in late, in a few hundred years later, they talked about 28. A few hundred years after that, they talk about 500. So I think in the, the general um, flow of religious um, uh, conceptual proliferation, then things get sort of more, uh, more kind of colorful and complicated and, uh, and detailed as time goes by. But uh, certainly within the Buddha's own lifetime, he spoke of himself as being part of this kind of, of lineage. So that uh, in terms of the, the talk today and what I thought would be useful, that, uh, in, uh, in respect to most Buddhist teachings and Buddhist stories, you have three different uh, layers or three different levels. You have the, the mythological layer, you have the historical, and you have the psychological. So you would say... The, um, the mythological format would be, you know, say, talking about Buddhas of previous ages and 91 Kalpas ago. And, you know, a Kalpa is from a, a big bang to a big crunch. So it's like a whole universe coming into being, reaching its limit, and then collapsing to, to nothingness, and then another universe uh, ex uh, arising, expanding, and collapsing. So we would call that the mythological framework. So most Buddhist stories have a mythological framework, and then you have the historical, that we know, uh, even if people dispute, well, when exactly was the Buddha born? You know, what exactly did he say? We, we can be pretty sure that some very exceptional being uh, lived in northeast India, was born uh, in the northeast India, Nepal area, and uh, spent uh, quite a number of years traveling and teaching around that area, and has left a legacy of teachings for, uh, for, for many, many people that have uh, lasted to the present day. So there's a, a historical element, um, and the, most of the scholars uh, debate around you know, what is uh, precise in terms of history, and you know, say what exactly the Buddha taught, and where exactly he lived, and where exactly things happened. And then you have the psychological, which is to say, um, how does uh, the, the figure of the Buddha uh, and the teachings, how do they map onto our our own uh, psychology, our own internal uh, patterns of experience? You know, how does that work? So that um, yeah, uh, I would suggest, and this is a helpful framework to consider that you have in, in any Buddhist teaching, and most religious teachings, you have these three uh, three layers: the, the mythological, the historical, and the psychological that that interweave and, and inform each other. So that's what I thought would I present. Uh, in particular, uh, today, and particularly the the kind of <coughs> the talking mostly about the um, uh, the, the uh, say the mythological side, you know what a, what a Buddha represents in terms of, of um, principles, and then how that maps onto our own experience.
So when uh, we talk about the Buddha, uh, what does it mean to be a, uh, to be a Buddha? Then we have a, a series of characteristics that we we recite. So that when we have the morning and evening chanting, we recite itipiso pakava arahang samma samputo vicha charana sampano sukato loka vedu anuttaro purisadhamma sarati satta deva manusanang puto pakava ti. So these are called the nine qualities of the Buddha. So these are say describing the. Um, the, the qualities of the Buddha as a, a, a spiritual entity, as a, a, a as a kind of mentor, as a spiritual example for us, and that the, these uh, these nine qualities. Um, uh, the first is uh, arahang, um, which uh, I, there's a few different translations of these, so I, I, I took the liberty of <laughs> precaution of writing these down. So, some places. Uh, Arahang is re, uh, translated as the pure one or the accomplished. Samasambuddho means a perfectly enlightened Buddha, one who has been who has arrived at full enlightenment uh, under their own um, as their own guidance, not through the, the uh, say the uh, the influence or the uh, the kind of um, uh, teaching structure or practices of another teacher. So perfectly self enlightened. Vijja Charana Sampano means. Uh, uh, impeccable or perfect in conduct and understanding, perfect in in uh, knowledge uh, and um, and conduct. Sugato means the sublime one or the accomplished one. Lokavidu means the knower of the worlds, one who understands how the world works, one who who sees the world clearly. Anuttara Purisadhamma Sarati. Uh, in our in uh, our chanting books, that's translated as uh, he trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. So the the one who is the unexcelled teacher of those who wish to be who wish to be taught. Satha Deva Manusanang, teacher of gods and humans. Buddha, one who is awake, enlightened. Pagawa, one who is holy or blessed. So we we recite those those qualities um, uh, of the the Buddha. Say so these are the the qualities of the Buddha, and we say. Uh, recite those as an act of reverence, of gratitude, of, uh, of respect, and to, to see this this being who lived two and a half thousand years ago was an embodiment of those qualities. So when we, when we ponder the question, what does it mean to be a Buddha? It means a Buddha is a, a being who embodies those particular qualities. And so there are also other lists of qualities like the, the ten powers of the Buddha, um, which uh, say encompass things like knowing what is what is possible and what is impossible, uh, knowing the the nature of all uh, other beings, understanding the characters and dispositions of all other beings, uh, and uh, also having the, the particular powers of seeing into past lives, seeing into the, the karmic streams of, of other beings, and also being being fully liberated. So we we talk about these particular. Uh, qualities of a of a Buddha, and say a, 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 a Buddha has these particular characteristics. We also say that according to the mythology, that uh, a Buddha only arises in the world when all memory of the previous Buddha has disappeared. So that uh, all memory of Kasapa Buddha and the teachings of Kasapa Buddha, Kasapa Buddha uh, have, have disappeared from the world, and it's only then that the, the next Buddha, Buddha Gotama, has arisen. Also within the lifetime of a Buddha. Then there are these uh, uh, sort of certain you know, mythological, uh, say, uh, 
patterns whereby uh, the the the, uh, the town where the Buddha was born, uh, the, the being enlightened under the Bodhi tree, having the two chief disciples, uh, establishing a sangha. You know, these uh, these are, are patterns that occur in the lifetimes according to the mythology of every single Buddha, whether it's Vipassi, Sikhi, Vaisapu, Konagamna, Kagusanda, Kasapa. Uh, that uh, these are patterns that repeat themselves in a mythological form. So then, uh, one of the interesting things then is to consider, well, uh, we, we revere this great being, that we are here, sitting in this place. This former school in Hertfordshire is, is uh, now a place where we gather and we reflect upon the, uh, the, the lifestyle established by this great being. We reflect upon the, the, the teachings that he left. Um, if you consider two and a half thousand years ago, it was still the Iron Age here. This was 450 years before the Romans arrived. It's a long time ago. <laughs> if you're aware of, of British history, it was still, uh, uh, this is still the prehistoric era. It was out of the, out of the Stone Age. <laughs> But it was uh, the Iron Age. This, uh, uh, this was a completely different world. Where we are now in, in Hertfordshire, this was still just an you know, Iron Age civilization. It was a very, very different world. And here we are. We've gathered together from a person who was teaching in India at that time, 2,500 years ago. And we are uh, living in a way that's guided by that person's insights, embodying um, the, the particular teachings that he gave, even wearing the same clothing that he, uh, that he uh, uh, say, established, that the, this, the pattern that our robes are sewn in, this is the longest-lasting fashion on the surface of the planet. You know, the, the, the Buddha, because in the early days, the nuns and monks used to, used to wear robes put together by bits of scraps of cloth in whatever way the different... Um, the sizes of, of different patches were, were formed, and they were just going to put it all together and make a basically rectangular uh, wrap. And the Buddha one day was walking through the hills looking with, with Ananda and looking down over the fields, the rice fields in Magadha, and said, Ananda, see how the, the fields are laid out in strips, laid out in squares? And so, Ananda, Ananda, it would be good if you could design a robe that's made in that, that kind of a pattern, like the paddy fields of Magadha. So Venerable Ananda went off and drew up a design, and that's what we still wear. So here we are, 2,500 years later, wearing a, a, a fashion design from, uh, that was put together by Venerable Ananda you know, 2,500 years previously. So uh, we chant these words, itipiso bhagava arahang samma sambuddho, and we recollect these qualities, as a, uh, to express our gratitude that these teachings have come down, that they can affect our lives so deeply and directly, so helpfully, that they are um, a, a, a way that uh, we can live and uh, establish our patterns of thinking in the, the current age that helps us and uh, makes a big difference. Even in urban uh, 21st century life, these teachings are, are still applicable and, uh, and can be of direct benefit to us. So that's a miraculous thing. But uh, in terms of making those teachings uh, alive and really helping us, uh, for, for most of us it takes more than revering a, a great spiritual teacher from two and a half thousand years ago that we might look up to that great being as an example and we might express our gratitude. But how does that really change our life? How does that really benefit us in a, in a direct way?
So I thought I would, uh, I was pondering this, this theme, so I thought I would share with you a, um, uh, a passage from one of Aj uh, Ajahn Chah's Dhamma teachings that relates particularly to this area and um, that I, I feel is one of the most uh, profound teachings that, that he ever gave. So uh, uh, probably most of you know this, uh, this monastery, Amravati, was established uh, as a branch of Ajahn Chah's Monastery, this is a painting of him up on the, the wall here. So he lived from uh, 1918, he was born in June of 1918, and lived until uh, January of 1992. And uh, uh, he uh, established a, a, a style of practice and uh, teaching that was you know, uh, as fully in accord with the Buddha's way as he, he could. And uh, this monastery and about 380 others in Thailand and around the world are, are say, f uh, established according to the, the standards that, that uh, Lumpur Chah, say, put into place. And uh, <clears throat> one of the, the reasons I feel that his teaching is so, uh, say, has been so uh, much appreciated and is so widespread is because of the practical applicability of that, the way he spoke. And, uh, and also, he was very uh, respectful and, uh, of the teaching, very traditional, very orthodox in many ways, but also he was uh, capable of bringing it alive and helping it to be applicable in, in a very direct way. So this is from a, a, a teaching of his that's entitled Dhamma Nature. In the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah, there's, uh, uh, his, many of his Dhamma talks are put together in a single volume. So this is uh, from uh, the talk Dhamma Nature. The Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha exist in our minds, but we have to see it clearly. Some people just pick this up casually saying, oh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha exist in my mind, yet their own practice is not suitable or appropriate. It is thus not befitting that the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha should be found in their minds, namely because the mind must first be that mind which knows the Dhamma. Bringing everything back to this point of Dhamma, we will come to know that the truth does exist in the world, and thus it is possible for us to practice and realize it. For instance, Nama Dhamma, feelings, thoughts, imagination, etc., is all uncertain. When anger arises, it grows and changes and finally disappears. Happiness too arises, grows and changes, and finally disappears. They are empty. They are not any thing. This is always the way of all things, both mentally and materially. Internally, there are this body and mind. Externally, there are trees, vines, and all manner of things which display this universal law of uncertainty. Whether a tree, a mountain, or an animal, it's all Dhamma. Everything is Dhamma. Where is this Dhamma? Speaking simply, that which is Dhamma doesn't exist. Dhamma is nature. This is called the Satchatamma, the true Dhamma. If one sees nature, one sees Dhamma. If one sees Dhamma, one sees nature. Seeing nature, one knows the Dhamma. And so, what is the use of a lot of study when the ultimate reality of life, in its every moment, in its every act, is just an endless cycle of births and deaths? If we are mindful and clearly aware when in all postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying, then self-knowledge is ready to be born. That is, knowing the truth of Dhamma already in existence, right here and now. At present, the Buddha, the real Buddha, is still living. For he is the Dhamma itself, the Satchatamma. And Satchatamma, that which enables one to become Buddha, still exists. It hasn't fled anywhere. It gives rise to two Buddhas, 
one in body and the other in mind. The real Dhamma, the Buddha told Ananda, can only be realized through practice. Whoever sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. And how is this? Previously, no Buddha existed. It was only when Siddhartha Gautama realized the Dhamma that he became the Buddha. If we explain it in this way, then he is the same as us. If we realize the Dhamma, then we will likewise be the Buddha. This is called the Buddha in mind, or Nama Dhamma. We must be mindful of everything we do, for we become the inheritors of our own good or evil actions. In doing good, we reap good. In doing evil, we reap evil. All you have to do is look into your everyday lives to know this is so. Siddhartha Gautama was enlightened to the realization of this truth, and this gave rise to the appearance of a Buddha in the world. Likewise, if each and every person practices to attain this truth, then they too will change to be Buddha. Thus, the Buddha still exists. Some people are very happy saying, oh, if the Buddha still exists, then I can practice Dhamma. That is how you should see it. The Dhamma that the Buddha realizes is the Dhamma which exists permanently in the world. It can be compared to groundwater, which permanently exists in the ground. When a person wishes to dig a well, he must dig down deep enough to reach the groundwater. The groundwater is already there. He doesn't create the water, he just discovers it. Similarly, the Buddha didn't invent the Dhamma. He didn't decree the Dhamma, he merely revealed what was already there. Through contemplation, the Buddha saw the Dhamma. Therefore, it is said that the Buddha was enlightened, for enlightenment is knowing the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the truth of this world. Seeing this, Siddhartha Gautama is called the Buddha. The Dhamma is that which allows other people to become a Buddha, one who knows, one who knows Dhamma. If beings have good conduct and are loyal to the Buddha Dhamma, then those beings will never be short of virtue and goodness. With understanding, we shall see that we are really not far from the Buddha, but sitting face to face with him. When we understand the Dhamma, then at that moment, we will see the Buddha. If one really practices, one will hear the Buddha Dhamma, whether sitting at the root of a tree, lying down, or in whatever posture. This is not something to merely think about. It arises from the pure mind. Just remembering these words is not enough, because this depends upon seeing the Dhamma itself, nothing other than this. Thus, we must be determined to practice to be able to see this, and then our practice will really be complete. Wherever we sit, stand, walk, or lie down, we will hear the Buddha's Dhamma. In order to practice his teaching, the Buddha taught us to live in a quiet place so that we can learn to collect and restrain the senses of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. This is the foundation for our practice, since these are the only places where all things arise. Thus we collect and restrain these six senses in order to know the conditions that arise there. All good and evil arise through these six senses. They are the predominant faculties in the body. The eye is predominant in seeing, the ear in hearing, the nose in smelling, the tongue in tasting, the body in contacting hold, hot and cold, hard and soft, and the mind in the arising of mental impressions. All that remains for us to do is to build our practice around these points. So I'm also aware that Lumpur Cha told us never to prepare Dhamma talks. <laughs> but um, you know, not to, wishing any, or intending any disrespect to my revered teacher. Uh, I felt that this is an incredibly useful principles that he's put forth in that, that teaching. And uh, so it's helpful to, to contemplate that. Because it's a, a way that he would often speak. That uh, uh, you know, we, we can revere the Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago 
and look up, be grateful for his teaching. But the Buddha as a refuge, the Buddha as a um, as a, one of the aspects of the triple gem, yeah, then uh, we have to consider a refuge is a safe place. Uh, a memory or an imagined holy being of two and a half thousand years ago is not a safe place. It's not a, a genuine refuge. But uh, what makes the Buddha a refuge? When we say Buddha Saranang Gachami, uh, the words are not the refuge. <laughs> the the idea of the Buddha who lived all those years ago is not is not a refuge. It doesn't protect us. So what uh, uh, Lumpur Chah is talking about here is the Buddha, which is the real refuge. The Buddha, which is essentially the psychological aspect. The Buddha, which is the aware aspect of our own minds. And as he he says, when you you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. When you see the Buddha, you see the Dhamma. And saying everything is part of of nature. So what aspect of of your body or mind is not part of nature? Anybody come up with anything? (laughs) Everything, mental, physical, spiritual, uh, that uh, that we call ourselves or call the world around us, every single part of it is an aspect of nature. Even the you know, the microphone and the, the the plastic that the cable is is wrapped in these all came from you know uh, from minerals in the ground or petrochemicals in the ground that are woven together and formed according to the laws of nature. Uh, the, the electricity that the that powers the microphone and <coughs> that uh, is recording all this. Yeah, is all these are all aspects of nature, <clears throat> so that in in Ajahn Chah's statements here, when he says um, the uh, that uh, the uh, present the Buddha, the real Buddha is living, for he is the Dhamma itself, the Satchitama. The real Dhamma is uh, can only be realized through practice. So the Dhamma is nature, and that. Uh, that every aspect of, of our being is uh, is nature, is that Dhamma. And uh, one of the teachings that he quotes here and was used very, very often in his teachings, he would say, one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. One who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. And that comes from a, an exchange between the Buddha and a monk called Vakali, who was on his deathbed. And uh, he was uh, uh, regretting the fact that he was too ill to, to go and pay his respects to the Buddha. So... The Buddha heard about this and went to go and visit him in his kuti on the on the the slopes of Isigili, uh, I think near Rajagaha. And uh, when the Buddha arrived at his kuti, then Vakali tried to get up and and, uh, and bow down before the Buddha. And the Buddha said, uh, "Vakali, yes, take, be at ease, you know, sit, uh, lie down, don't 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 bother yourself. You, uh, why are you struggling to to get up?" And he said, "Well, I want to pay respects to you." And he said, "Well, why do you want to revere this filthy body? This kind of..." This uh, collection of thirty-two parts. You know, this is, uh, you know, that uh, if you see the Dhamma, you see me. If you see me, you see the Dhamma. And that uh, that exchange between him and Vakali, uh, if you can follow that. So the Buddha said, if you see me, you see the Dhamma. If you revere the Dhamma, you revere me. You don't have to be climbing off your bed and, and bowing down. That that's that's just an external gesture. But if you if you really see the Dhamma, then you're seeing me already. You don't have to. To just make a special effort, just because I've walked into your your hut, into your kuti. Similarly, uh, which also Ajahn Chah is, is referring to in this teaching, there's a, another uh, sutta in the Itivutaka called the Hem of the Robe, and the Buddha says, um, 
if uh, if a monk took hold of the edge of my robe, um, but his heart was filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, it would be as if he was living far away from me, you know, for many hundreds of leagues away, hundreds of miles away. Even if he's hanging on to my, the end of my the edge of my robe and following me around, it would be as if he is far from the Tathagata. And and comparative and comparably, if someone is living the other side of the Himalayas, they are physically many many leagues away but the heart is free of greed, hatred, and delusion, then it's as if they are sitting face-to-face with him. It's as if they are face-to-face with the Buddha, even though physically they're far away. So when we, we reflect upon this question, what does it mean to be a Buddha, then uh, the, uh, uh, in a way it's, it's, a, it's not just talking about a mythological form or kind of a, a historical uh, figure, but rather... Um, the quali- uh, what does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to embody that quality within our own hearts, within our, within our own minds? Because this is what Lumpur Chao would always point to. He said, the, the Buddha that's a refuge is the Buddha that's alive here and now. And, the, and that, that uh, the Buddha that's alive, that is accessible here and now, is the awareness of your own mind, the capacity that your mind has to be awake. <coughs> That's the that's the refuge. That's the, the safe place. So, like right now, yeah. Uh, so I'm just getting over a cold, and a bit kind of uh, uh, sort of sneezy, clogged up, feverish, kind of kind of yucky. <laughs> Yesterday I was I was laid out flat for most of the day. So fortunately, I'm a little bit more energetic today. So. Uh, if the mind takes refuge in the body and identifies with the body, then it goes, oh, I'm sick, I'm unwell, and, and uh, I really want this to be over. This is really inconvenient. I've got to give the Sunday talk tomorrow. <laughs> Am I going to be well in time? And the mind can get uh, annoyed or worried or um, uh, you know, upset. But uh, if there's awareness, then we recognize, well, I can be aware of this feeling of sneezing a lot and, and having a clogged up head, uh, being uh, um, sleepy and feverish. The mind can be fully aware of that and not make anything out of it. Say, so, okay, well, it's only Saturday. I've got uh, the other monks are taking care of the uh, Asala Puja uh, ceremonies at, uh, uh, yesterday evening, that was. And uh, so I don't have to think about it. I can leave that alone. And if I'm well by tomorrow, great. If I'm not well tomorrow, Tomorrow, well, something else will happen. <laughs> Somebody else will look after the Sunday events if, if I'm not able to. And so that in that moment, there's, there can be a, a full awareness of the, the body being, uh, being ill or, or, you know, or kind of um, uh, you know, unable to, to do much. And if the mind is not identified with that, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a refuge, it's a safe place. As soon as the mind is identified with the body, and the personality with my gains and losses, comfort, discomfort, success and failure, then there's the, the in a way, we're not the knower of the world, but the heart has been born into the world. We've become attached to the world. So the, the psychological aspect of um, being a Buddha is in a way the most important. And this is what you know, Lumpur Cha would uh, emphasize, that you know, the Buddha that is, uh, the Buddha's alive. He's not just a, uh, a historical figure to revere and to sort of pray to to sort of help you get through your exams or to to uh, before you go into the operation, Buddha, please help me. I'm going under the knife, you know. Please be kind. 
like that's that's uh, talking to an invisible deity is is not really um, the uh, right way to understand Buddha Dhamma. <laughs> I would suggest, but um, but rather the um, uh, the the Buddha that is the refuge is that oh I can be aware as I, as they put the anesthetic into me I can be aware as they they you know, wheel me into the operating theater. I, I heard an interesting story when I was in Thailand about uh, Lumpur Pliyan, who's a very highly revered uh, meditation master. He lives in, in the north of Thailand near Chiang Mai. Uh, I was just in Thailand in, in June, and um, there some of the, the monks I met had just been to go and see him. He, he's very ill right now and probably close to the end of his life, um, according to what the, these, these monks had to say. And they were recounting a story of Lumpur Pliyan a number of years ago. He's, he's very highly regarded as a meditation teacher, and uh, uh, many years ago, he had this abscess in his leg. It was like a, an infection that just wouldn't heal up. And so the medical advice was that, well, you need to go and have an operation and kind of cut out all of the, the infected tissue and, and patch it all up and then let the, let the leg recover with all of the infected tissue uh, cut away. So he finally agreed to that because the thing was not healing up on its own. And then he, when he went uh, to the hospital, he said, I'd like you to do the operation without any anesthetic. You know, I'm, I'm interested to investigate the feelings. And uh, I thought that would get your attention. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a few medical people gathered here. That, and so the doctors, the doctors said, no, 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 no way. We can't possibly do that. And uh, he said, please, I want you, you know, I'm the patient, you know, please do it for me. And, uh, you know, you call yourselves my students and uh, you respect me, so please, I'm asking you. So apparently they went back and forth a little bit on this. And then finally the doctor said, okay, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to put this tray of instruments. We'll do it without the anesthetic, but I'm going to put this tray of instruments on the top of your legs. And as soon as any of these, as soon as there's any movement in this, the instrument tray, as soon as we hear a sound of anything even rattling, then we're going to give you the anesthetic straight away. So uh, apparently he got through the operation without twitching. And it was a kind of a big abscess, you know, sort of fist-sized uh, chunk they had to sort of carve out of his leg. And it was so nasty that uh, when they, they released him from the hospital with a dressing on it, when he went back to his monastery, and uh, he, he was he, uh, uh, asked to give instructions to his attendant monks on how to change the dressing, yet two of his attendants fainted when they, when they saw the hole in his leg. <laughs> So he ended up having to change the dressing himself because his his upatarks, his attendants, couldn't cope with this kind of great gaping wound in the Ajahn's leg. But he was apparently fine with it. So I, I, I acknowledge this is a bit of an extreme example, but uh, the uh, but that which also shows how the mind can take refuge in in awareness that uh, there is. A, a full attention, but a non-attachment, non non-identification, even even with intense feeling uh, of that kind of scale, of that kind of nature. And the, the Buddha himself, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he makes the comment at the beginning of the, this teaching in the Diganikaya, at about uh, the end of his life. He says, "You know, my I'm I'm 80 years old. My body is like an old cart." It's, held together with strings and straps and wires. It's impossible for me to, to experience any kind of comfort. He said, if I'm, if I'm paying attention to the, to the body, then I'm in constant pain. 
The only way I can experience any kind of comfort is to completely absorb my mind into emptiness. Yeah, if he's paying attention to the, to the senses, then the predominant experience was one of pain. So even the Buddha had chronic pain. He didn't complain about it, <laughs> didn't make a problem out of it, but he just casually mentions you know, that that's what he's experiencing whenever he's just uh, paying attention to the, the body and the senses in, in the ordinary way. So this um, <clears throat> establishment of, uh, of awareness, this is uh, as it was say, described there a little bit in the, the talk by Ajahn Chah, you know, this is a refuge that is available to us all the time. And insight meditation, vipassana, is uh, essentially built around the establishment of that quality of awareness and the development of that as a refuge. So right, right now we can say oh, we're, we're sitting in the sala here at Amravati and it's a Sunday afternoon. Dhamma talk is fairly sort of benign, non-threatening, I, I presume fairly pain-free for most people. <laughs> Maybe some of you got chronic pain, but uh, you know, if so, then uh, it's, it's an even better example. So we can, uh, in this moment, we can say, well, we're sitting in the, the sala here at Amravati. Uh, but actually, if you look at it in terms of, of insight, there's awareness of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, arising and passing away. We close our eyes, the visual world disappears. Open the eyes, the visual world reappears. You know, if, I, if I stop speaking, auditory consciousness switches off. If I start speaking, then the, the, the mind goes to, into picking up uh, sound again. So that we are putting together our impression of the world moment by moment in, in this uh, field of experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. As Ajahn Chah said at the the very end of that, that talk, you know, the, the, uh, all good and evil arise through these six senses. You know, this is where um, uh, our practice uh, is to be focused because that's where experience is, is located. So that when we train the mind to be aware, to know, oh, this is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. This is the world coming into being. Uh, this is being formed in this field of awareness right now. At that moment, there's the awareness, there's the, the quality of knowing, and there is the objects of awareness. There's a, if you like, there's a, a, a separation, a transcending. The, the mind is still aware of the world, but it's not entangled with the world. It's still, uh, say, fully participating in the world, and uh, the, the words are flowing out of my mouth, and the, my mind is choosing what words to say next. There's an engagement with the world, but at the same time, there's a, a non-entanglement. So that this, uh, say, the, the, um, the Buddha that is the refuge is that very quality of, of awareness. Now, as he said, the, the, as Ajahn Chah pointed out, if we say, oh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, they're aspects of my mind. Like, so I'm, I am Buddha. Oh, wow, that means I'm already enlightened. Hey, great. You know, I, can, I can claim to be you know, enlightened if the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha are already just aspects of my mind. But what he points out is like that the mind actually has to be fully in tune with reality. Otherwise, it's just an idea. Like I, I spent a lot of years in California with this kind of um, the idea of, of being Buddha. Or, uh, and just, all you've got to do is just be, awake, just be aware and just do whatever, do whatever you feel like. As long as you're aware of it, then you're being Buddha. So that's a way to get into serious trouble. <laughs> Because you have the idea, it's like having a kind of plastic policeman's badge. Yeah, it, it looks like a police officer's badge, but you kind of stick it on your jacket. But it doesn't mean that you're a police officer. 
You got the badge, but it doesn't mean to say that you're qualified. So in the same way, the idea of, oh, the awareness of my mind is Buddha. Hey, that's great. Doesn't mean to say that your heart is totally free of greed, hatred, and delusion at all times. It'd be much easier if it was. It would be much easier if it was so simple. But uh, the uh, the practice is a is a clarification, a purification, and a, say a freeing of the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion, so that that innate quality of awareness, the capacity of the mind to know, is undistorted, is unbiased by personal preferences, by fears, by desires, by aver uh, aversions and, and our personal conditioning. Uh, simple ways to, um, to approach this also, that, that uh, Lumpur Sumato would often um, emphasize this, this theme, this area as a centerpiece of practice. And many, many years ago, back when the, the, back when the only monastery that we had in this, this country was at uh, Chithurst, uh, that uh, before any of the, the branches uh, started up in Northumberland or in uh, the West Country or any place, that uh, in the very early days of Chithurst, Ajahn Sumedha used to often ask the question, what is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know? What is it that Buddhas know? And you think, wow, the ten powers of the Buddha, the Buddha knows all, he knows all of the karmic streams of every being around him. He's fully aware of all of the different planes of existence. He can see in, back into the past, back into the time of Vipassi Buddha or way back to Tanhankara Buddha. And, and uh, the Buddha has this kind of cosmic vision and understanding of all things. So that's what the mind might imagine. When he, but it was a deliberately kind of uh, leading question. What is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know? And then he would pause for a moment and he'd say, what Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know is that all that arises passes away and is not self. Oh, so it's kind of deliberately disappointing. You know, is that all? <laughs> but uh, that is that is the uh, the essential thing. that The Buddha, what is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know is that everything is changing. And like uh, exactly as as Lumpur Cha puts it here, that the uh, what the the Buddhas know is that everything is uncertain. Every perception is changing. Everything is uh, in a state of of flux, and the mind does not know what's going to happen next. It's uncertain. It it, uh, it can't create certainty out of what is intrinsically uncertain. So that uh, the uh, another of, of Ajahn Chah's statements in a, in a different Dhamma talk, he, he actually says this. Uh, he says, the Buddha is uncertainty. Again, they think, what? <laughs> the Buddha is uncertainty. That you think, well, that's a weird thing to say. That the, but uh, he said, the Buddha is uncertainty because the, the, the truth of Dhamma is that all things are uncertain. Sabe Sankara Anicca. All things, Sabe Sankara Anicca are uncertain, are transient. Is that, that is the, the, the truth of the way things are in respect to all experiential reality. And if, the, if one sees the Buddha, one sees the Dhamma, one sees the Dhamma, one sees, one sees the Buddha, if, if, that, uh, if the Dhamma is the truth that all things are uncertain, then the Buddha is that, uh, that truth of uncertainty as well. So he would make this kind of statement. The Buddha is uncertainty. One who sees... The mind that truly sees that everything is uncertain is the Buddha mind. Now, you might be, on the one hand, you might kind of be prone to inflation, saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the Buddha. I'm the, <laughs> I am pure awareness. That's what I am." 
one end of the scale. The other end of the scale, like me, oh no, 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 no. I'm just this kind of ordinary wretched person with kind of petty thoughts and all kinds of anxieties and irritations and opinions that I won't let go of. And my, you know, my, I'm attached to my possessions and my house and my dog. And, you know, and we, we kind of underrate ourselves. But uh, these either overrating yourself or underrating yourself are both uh, uh, aspects of the mind uh, say drifting wide of, of the middle, being uh, say out of balance. But when the mind is awake to the to the middle way, then and when there is the maximum quality of of, of clarity, then there without uh, overestimating yourself or underestimating yourself, just recognizing well whether I like it or not or whatever I make of it, the mind has this quality of awareness. And that awareness is not really a person. It knows success, it knows failure, it knows praise, it knows criticism, it knows gain, it knows loss. It's just this. It's simply this. And uh, <clears throat> and whatever it knows is intrinsically in a state of change. So that, that simple uh, reflection of Lumpur Sumatos, uh, what is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know? All that arises passes away and is not self. So on the surface level, it seems like a very simple statement, almost bland, like, oh, is that all? <laughs> I can remember that. But to really know it moment by moment, knowing this feeling of, of the delight of success, uh, the sweetness of success, of getting what you like, yes, the bitterness of losing what you like uh, and, or being criticized uh, or feeling loss or pain, to know oh, this is this arises and passes away and it's not self. How could it be me and mine? Ha! Huh. So when the mind truly knows that and is fully aware of it but un, unentangled in it, that is the, the awake mind, the, the Buddha mind. There's another exchange that is very, very significant in the Pali Canon um, where the, the Buddha met a, uh, a Brahmin called Dona and uh, <clears throat> the, the story goes, uh, it's in the sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, Dona was walking along the road and he saw the footprints in the dust of the Buddha. And he thought, wow, who, you know, what kind of a person left these footprints, these, 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 uh, these marks left in the, in the footprints? They're so strange, these perfectly round uh, marks like a wheel with, with perfect spokes. You know. Who's got feet like this? This is amazing uh, uh, and very you know, symmetrical and Strange in terms of the imprint that the, the feet made in the dust. So Dona, they kind of followed these footprints and then they saw that they led off the road and into the forest. So he followed the footprints and then he saw the, the Buddha sitting under a tree. And the Buddha was meditating and Dona was extremely impressed. Like, wow, what kind of a being is this? That He was very, very tall, very serene, very radiant, sitting under the, med under the tree meditating. And so uh, the Brahmin... Uh, Dona kind of went up and kneeled down, and, and after a time, then the Buddha opened his eyes, and, and uh, Dona spoke to him and said, "Excuse me, uh, are, are you uh, are you a deva?" And he said, "No, I'm not a deva. Are, are you a are you a Brahma god?" He said, "No, I'm not a Brahma. Are you a, a yaka, a celestial demon?" He said, "No, not a celestial demon. Are you, are you a tree spirit?" Or, you know, "No. Are you are you a person?" "No, I'm not a person." So well, well, what are you? And so in that, I mean, he does, you know, are you a human being? Are you a person? And the Buddha says no. So the Buddha can't lie. 
he's incapable of lying. So then Dona asks him, are you a human being? Are you a person? And he says, no. So that's interesting. So then the, the Buddha makes this, this comment, said, that whereby uh, the Tathagata could be identified as being a Brahma or as a Deva or as a, a Yaka or as a, or as a, a, a Manusa, as a human being, uh, has, been, uh, has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump. Uh, <coughs> you know, completely abandoned and rendered incapable of arising in the future. You know, the, the, the Tathagata has abandoned any form of, of identification, uh, any kind of attachment, whereby he could be described by any of these any of these forms. So then, then Dona says, so, well, what are you then? And the Buddha says, you can know me as one who is awake, buddho smi, buddho asmi. And uh, that, that's probably the place where we get the word Buddha from, that very exchange. <laughs> it's one of the like, sort of key, I mean, it's, it's a unique little dialogue in the canon, but... Um, and the and the the term buddho is used in the nine qualities of the of the Buddha, but it's a significant statement when the Buddha is asked, "Well, what are you? Buddho sami, buddho asmi, yeah, that uh, I am awake, or you can know me as one who is awake, uh, or wakefulness." Now, another of the uh, the the, the uh, reflections that Lumpur Sumedha would give that relates to this area that I think is is very very helpful is um, in terms of how we relate to our, our mind, our personality, our, our, our life. And say, for example, you uh, have a habit of being irritated, that you're, that you're, you're complaining. You say, oh, I've got such a problem with complaining. I'm so critical. I'm always annoyed with people. I'm complaining and criticizing people. Or maybe you're very lustful. You're going to keep falling in love with people, keep being uh, obsessed by... People, uh, or maybe you're afraid. You're a, you're a, a worrier. You know, I've got a real worry problem. I'm, I feel just so anxious and 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 uh, fearful all the time. Or maybe you're very jealous, uh, and uh, you have a uh, have a repeated issues with jealousy, being jealous of other people. I'm, I'm not. By the way, I, I always say I'm not uh, not reading anybody's mind. So if you're thinking, <gasps> how did he know? How did he know? It's, it's like it's just statistics. I keep. I always say this. It's not psychi- It's not psychic powers. It's just statistics. That's how we are as human beings. Some of us are going to be jealous types. Some of us are going to be lustful types. Some of us are going to be complainers. Some of us are going to be uh, worriers. You know, that's how we tend to be. So we might think I've got a jealousy problem. Or I've got a lust problem. Or I've got a, a fear problem. And then be very sincere and diligent in trying to work on my problem and thinking I'm I'm being. Realistic. I'm trying to do what's necessary, and what uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often point out is that you know, in our very effort to work with these particular difficulties, we actually strengthen them, we reify them, we make them real. This because of saying, "Me and my problem. I've got this fear problem. I've got this jealousy problem. I've got this a- a- anger problem," and so that unconsciously, unwittingly, we are turning, making there a, a real substantial I who is the genuine owner of this substantial thing there's me who has this problem and the mind creates this idea if there was me without the problem me without the jealousy problem me without the anger problem me without the fear problem wouldn't that be great seems reasonable enough and many of the texts that we read seem to 
describe that or encourage that. But what he would point out is that the, in the very way the mind frames it, it, it reifies the, the, the difficulty. And the more it's me and my problem, the, 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 no matter how hard we try to work, the more it, uh, it seems to strengthen it, make it impossible to, to work with. So he would suggest what he would call a paradigm shift, changing the paradigm from, from me and my problem to the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, or the, the awake mind seeing the way things are. And so that, uh, again, it might sound a little bit inflated or sort of hyperbolic, say the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. I'm not a Buddha, I'm just, I'm just this person with an with a anger problem. <laughs> but uh, Buddha in this respect, maybe Buddha with a small b, the, the awake mind, uh, the, as the Ajahn Chah says, the Buddha in mind, the awake mind that knows the feeling of, of complaining or feeling of lust or the feeling of fear, the feeling of jealousy. Now, even though we might say, I'm, I'm jealous all the time, or I'm always, I'm always lustful, I'm always angry, uh, what Lumpur Sumedha would point out is that we tell ourselves that, but it's really not true. If you look, yeah, maybe it's a repetitive pattern, but it's not there all the time. And that uh, even if you see it as like a strong habit, uh, in, no, in, in nobody's uh, experience does it uh, really exist all the time. It arises and passes away. In fact, one of Ajahn Chah's uh, meditations on anger, and he, this is an interesting practice, just as a, an, an aside, he said, if, uh, uh, rather than trying to practice loving kindness to get rid of anger, practice anger. Think an angry thought and sustain it for an hour. And as soon as your mind stops feeling angry, let go of the non-angry thought and re-establish the anger. And you, you try and do that, and it's virtually impossible. You know, I, I tried it a couple of times. And to try and stay angry for an hour is really hard work. <laughs> By the time you get to the end of the hour, it's like, oh, thank goodness that's over. So you might try that as an extra practice. But going back to the, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. So then what this is doing is like saying, yeah, well, there's rather than I've got a fear problem, which is what I'm and I was most intensely working with in those days. This is back in the mid-80s, when, uh, um, in the late-80s, when Lumpur Sumedha was teaching here at Amravati, would be, uh, say, yeah, it's true, actually. Amazingly enough, the teacher is correct. <laughs> I, I say I've got it, I'm always, I'm always worried, I'm always, I'm always afraid, but it's not true. There's times when I, I forget that altogether, I'm brushing my teeth or, uh, on my way somewhere, and then suddenly I realized, oh, I've forgotten to be worried. <laughs> and you realize, oh, it's right, it does, it arises and passes away. And that, that suggestion of changing the paradigm, going from me and my problem, to here is the awake mind seeing the, this feeling arising and passing away. It was not like some kind of special mind filter being overlaid on top, but rather it was peeling away the filters of, of presumption and supposition and habit and seeing what was already really there. That, that actually, yeah, it's not like something I'm adding to it. It's really when you peel away the layers of habit and delusion, here is the, the aware mind seeing this, this pattern of feeling arising and passing away. Oh, that's what's always been happening. So that there, there's always just been this quality of awareness, knowing uh, fear or, or jealousy or desire or version, whatever it might be, arising and passing away. 
And when that paradigm is shifted, and that there's a um, a quality of uh, the letting go of the personalizing habit, the letting go of the I and me and mine, and seeing it in terms of here's the awake mind, the Buddha mind, seeing the way things are. There's a spaciousness, there's an, a naturalness. So even though the, the what's being experienced might be quite unwholesome or painful, there's a, a spaciousness around it. There's not that, that kind of um, stress of identification. There's it's seeing, oh, well, fear arises and passes away. There's a body, there's a mind. Fear is going to happen. Aversion is going to happen. Jealousy is going to happen. So it doesn't have to be seen as, as a problem. It doesn't have to be seen as me and mine. So this, I found, was a tremendously helpful and practical teaching. So when we reflect on this this theme, what does it mean to be a Buddha? <laughs> it doesn't have to be some sort of theoretical uh, idea or just talking about the uh, a, an idealized myth- mythological being, but to be a Buddha, to, maybe uh, with a, a small b, you know, to be a Buddha is to be that awareness that is able to know the arising and passing of all things, and the uh, in that being Buddha, then there's a tremendous freedom. <coughs> when we maybe one of the, the last thing to to share, then before we we have break for our, our tea and then stretch our legs and such like. The, um, when we, we consider that quality of awareness, then we see how the mind tries to take that, turn that into an object or make that into something. But just like the Buddha said to, to Dana, you know, that whereby the, the Tathagata might be identified as a deva or as a, a yaka or as a brahma or as a person has been abandoned by the Tathagata. There's a similar exchange that the Buddha has with, um, with Vachagota, when Vachagota has been uh, as a wanderer who's been asking the Buddha about what happens to an enlightened being after the passing away of the body, then the, the Buddha um, speaks about his own internal experience uh, in a very uh, and his his own uh, way of relating to the body and the experiential reality. He said, and talking about his own experience, so he said, uh, Vacha, yeah. Um, that material form of feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata might describe him, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, uh, has been completely relinquished and rendered incapable of arising in, in the future. You know, the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. You know, the Tathagata, you can't, reckon it, you can't form it, you say, well, what is that awareness? Is it male, female, tall, short? Is it, does it have a nationality? Yeah. Is that the Tathagata, or you can say your own, that awareness of your own heart is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, or consciousness. The Tathagata is profound, boundless, immeasurable, like the great ocean. So that that... Uh, to to you know, to take as a final reflection, then you said that you can hear in this this teaching that the, the Tathagata is that aware awake quality is it has a substantial reality, but you can't describe that in terms of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or any of our normal reference points. 
So the Buddha just says it's, it's immeasurable, unfathomable, boundless, like the great ocean, which is very frustrating to the thinking mind. <laughs> but, but I want to know, I want to have a definition. But it's frustrating to the thinking mind, but if you notice, it's also liberating to the heart, that this heart, this aware, awake quality, can't be defined, can't be determined or, or, or formed in terms of our normal language and thinking in terms of our normal imagination. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon. So we can have a, a break now for a quarter of an hour or so, and uh, I suspect the tea makers have been busy, I, and uh, the doors are opening, yes, and uh, we can reconvene about 20 past for the questions and answers and Dhamma discussion.